This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate. Hi, I'm Greg Watson and welcome to this week's show of Property Matters where we talk all things property or as much as we can squeezed into a format just under half an hour. It's lovely to have your company today. So starting with a bit of local news, this article from Paul Mitchell and Stuff says city planners lay the path for housing intensification in Palmerston North. So you'd be aware and from last week's show that uh, the National Party and Labour Party are looking at putting a joint bill through to allow intensification of housing in a number of areas. So the city planners are taking a look now how they can smooth the path for higher density housing in Palmerston North as demand will require it within the next decade. Developers have been warning of a shortage of residential sections around the city and the council has acknowledged most of the land suitable for housing has either been developed or is already marked for it. Council Chief Planning Officer David Murphy said a review of the Council's urban planning and development policies was underway to address how to accommodate the city's growing population over the coming decades. The review will include an examination of how effectively the Council's current policies support urban intensification and the types of housing likely to be in demand. So the Housing Minister Megan Woods and the Environment Minister David Parker announced this law change that will allow landowners to build up to three storeys without resource consent. So it's a joint bill, and that would be on most sites, I should say, for residential buildings of up to three storeys. They're starting with what they call Tier 1 cities, which would be Auckland, Greater Hamilton, Tauranga, Wellington and Christchurch, and some Tier 2 cities, such as Palmerston North, may be included if the Minister of Housing and the Minister of the Environment consider there is a critical need for housing. I would suggest that it's pretty critical, but uh, sometimes they overlook that. You'd think the people who uh, look at these definitions would see where the largest growth in prices are, which is a clear reflection of demand. But anyway, we'll see how we go with that. It's at the bill stage, needs to be moved forwards a bit. But Manawatu Wanganui was regularly in the top three regions for growth in the Real Estate Institute of New Zealand's monthly house price reports with records set in 11 of the last 12 months. And a big driver of that was the Palmerston North market where the average house price was 710000 in September and that's 23% higher than 2020. Murphy said the council had made several changes to its district plan in recent years to make building granny flats, medium density and multi-level housing developments a little easier, hoping to ease the gap between supply and demand. The council had even designed medium density housing development plans that offer them to developers with a guarantee of consent approval. But so far, no developer has taken up that offer. Maybe that's because there's been some uncertainty about if there was demand for that type of housing, but we're seeing an increase of interest in medium density developments. That's according to uh, Mr Murphy. He said that there have been several new apartment blocks pop up and several medium density housing developments over the past year or two, mainly in central Palmerston North, West End, Napier Road and the north side of Hokafitu. 
LJ Hooker Principal and Property Developer Steve Allen said while the Council's rules changes had made it easier to develop higher density housing, the long and involved resource consent process still made it hard to build enough housing to match demand. So we'll have to see where, where that goes. And it looks like uh, one thing that they'll be doing is trying to ensure that everything is built to code, of course, uh, which uh, the last time that things got relaxed in terms of building led to a lot of the leaky home side of things. So they're looking to relax the rules uh, apart from uh, the building code, of course. In other news, there's a busy Palmerston North block out of action for two months, so I don't know if you've uh, noticed this or not, but this article says that traffic is flowing again on Palmerston North's Princess Street, but from there to Victoria Ave, Church Street remains largely a no-go area for two months as sewer pipes are replaced. The project started uh, probably a couple of weeks ago now to replace the ageing wastewater mains and connections to properties along the block, requiring the closure of the street to through traffic. So I was down there for a drive this morning uh, to look at a property in Church Street, so it's really closed um, at the moment, only to residents or people uh, who need to be there. So the cost of the work is just a little bit over half a million, and it's um, happening about the same time as the major water pipe replacements you might have noticed by the Cloverleaf roundabout. It's just really updating the infrastructure. Uh, luckily, one thing in Palmerston North, uh, with the uh, exception to a certain extent of the Cloverleaf roundabout, is that a lot of our streets uh, we can just bypass by going around the block. So that's always a, a positive thing. So just another news here. This is a story based out of Auckland. Um, Na Kainga Anamata in Glendowie, Auckland is a pilot social housing project tackling climate change. And this is being highlighted as one of 17 international projects to feature at the virtual pavilion in the COP26. It's a climate change conference uh, in Glasgow. So these homes will be built to a passive home standard and are on track to receive a nine-home star rating. Kainga Order recently already committed to achieving a minimum six home star rating on all new builds. The great thing there being is once people are living and in place, uh, their costs are way down in terms of the residents. So this uh, nine, star, nine home star project will feature 30 new walk-up homes in five three-storey buildings. Other buildings on the site will include a community centre, two three-bedroom townhouses and a separate three-storey building with eight three-bedroom apartments and elevator. So each of the five near-identical buildings are part of the pilot project will use a different construction technology so sustainability insights can be gathered on a range of building materials and systems. That's a pretty good idea. So that's a uh, being given the go-ahead um, and the prediction is that tenants' energy costs could be as little as $1 a day uh, the new wish mine was mine's was <laughs> my last bill was about uh, close to four hundred dollars a month. So a um, uh, dollar a day would be fantastic. The new development has a focus on achieving government carbon emission targets while providing significant tenant benefits. Kang Order Commercial Director Matt Noy said by using low carbon materials, low carbon materials I should say, operational energy efficient solutions and local renewable energy generation. Life cycle carbon emissions have been thrashed to a fraction of what they are traditionally in a New Zealand built home. So that's good. I mean, that's positive. I'm not sure how much that adds to the cost, um, but there'll certainly be uh, very healthy homes for people to live in. 
They're just uh, changing sectors now to uh, hotel sales. And this article by Amanda Kropp from October says that the record hotel sales are likely to surpass $300 million despite the pandemic. So the hotel sales are likely to set new records this year and the pandemic has not dampened prices, according to Colliers International. The real estate company tracks sales of hotels with more than 50 rooms and National Director of Hotels Dean Humphreys said that sales to date were already well above the $120 million for the whole of last year. With the number of large hotel deals due to go through in the last quarter, there was a good chance total sales for the year would surpass $300 million, the highest volume of hotel transactions on record. Humphrey said demand was such that properties were selling privately without being publicly listed, mostly mostly to domestic buyers who are a mix of established operators seeking to expand and new investors. Most activity was in the lower band of properties, going for under $20 million, which reflected the fact that international buyers, who typically had more to spend, were shut out by the border closure. So it's uh, those smaller ones in the past made up of half of all hotel purchases, but were understandably a bigger part. And the overseas buyers, international buyers, made up half of all hotel purchases, but were understandably reluctant to commit without being able to get into New Zealand to inspect properties in person, added to which many large hotels with MIQ contracts were inaccessible, said Humphreys. When you need to buy a very large hotel asset, you need to visit the property to see it and do due diligence. So interesting there that uh, things are very busy indeed. And here's an interesting uh, story as well that was out uh, late last month. It says more than 250 investors looking to co-purchase a Tianel property. So the real estate crowdfunding platform Opoly is looking to co-purchase an 821 square metre residential section in Tianel. More than 250 people had committed about $157,000 to the purchase of two Tawira Place as of uh, Friday, of, of uh, that would have been late October, with three days left until the offers close, it says in this article. I haven't got an update for you, unfortunately, as to how they got on, but it says that Opoly operates by allowing investors to share to buy a share of the land or property in increments of $100. Then it is managed by Opoly for three years before being sold, with shareholders receiving a share of the sale proceeds. Opoly director Felix Watkins says the platform is focusing in on Tianao due to its population growth and density. Tianao's population increased by more than 26% in the past available census, growing from 2001 people in 2013 to 2,538 in 2018. Basically, the whole premise is that if there's more people per square kilometre, then land values should, in theory, be increasing, he said. In Tianao, in the whole entire region of Southland, there's been quite strong population growth, and there's been some good statistics that show the population is only going to increase. Opoly expects the residential section, currently valued at 219000 to have a resale value of 345400 by October the 25th, 2024. And it does not plan to build on the land at that time. So it's an interesting concept. Watkins founded Opoly in March of this year to allow what they say everyday Kiwis to get involved with real estate. Real estate crowdfunding is an idea that is growing overseas and I saw there was nothing in New Zealand so I wanted to get it going here, Watkins said. We want to make land investment accessible to Kiwis regardless of their wealth status. This is about opening up an asset class so that 
that so many people just can't get into. So last month, Opoli was successful in the purchase of land in Omuru, Waitaki, after shareholders raised $105,000 in funds in less than a month. Most investors in the purchase were from Wellington and Auckland, regions known for their high property prices. Two previous attempts to crowdfund the purchase of properties in Auckland were unsuccessful, which Watkins believed was due to a higher price point. As a result, the platform had pivoted to smaller land investments. That might be something uh, I might have a look at just out of curiosity. Joining in with lots of other people to buy land, it'll be interesting to see how that contract works and when it may be possible to free up the uh, free up your equity in that. So we'll have a little break just now. We're going to go to a bit of music. We've got uh, the song Rent by Pet Shop Boys here on Property Matters on NPR. You're listening to Property Matters here on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, Te Reo Irarangi o Nga Tangata o Manawatu. I am Greg Watson. It's lovely having your company here. Paying the Rent was the song. And uh, let's look at now moving over to the rental side of real estate. And this article in late October from Miriam Bell says, Rents drop for the first time in eight months. 
So for many renters, the prospect of rents decreasing is a more remote one than the chance that they might own a home. Yet there is one major city area where this is happening. So as, as per normal, the headline says something very dramatic, but it's actually just one area. So the national median weekly rent dropped for the first time in eight months, though, in September, according to Trade Me Property's latest rental price index. It fell to $535 per week, which was $15 less than August, but still 5% higher than the same time last year. Trade Me property spokesman Gavin Lloyd said it was the smallest year-on-year percentage increase recorded in six months and the first time the rate of growth had slowed since February. He says the lockdown brought the country to a halt in August. Unsurprisingly, that sent shockwaves through the rental market and as a result we saw rent stall in our two main centres in September. In the Auckland region, the median weekly rent remained at 595 for the third month in a row. The Wellington was 600 for the second month in a row. Now it's important to note that uh, given the population size in Auckland and Wellington, a drop there or a change there can easily be reported as national figures. But if we talk a little bit about uh, Manawatu Wanganui, or Manawatu in particular, um, the demand is up 27%. And so rents are still rising here uh, quite significantly and will do probably for some time yet. Now, one of the changes that the Housing Minister Megan's, Megan Woods had looked at was the and have put in place is the Bright Line test, which is aimed to stop people from flipping properties. So how much of a percentage do you think of property sales are paying the Bright Line test? At the moment, it's just 3%. Just 3%. So uh, incredibly, remember, if you sell a residential investment property that you've owned for less than 10 years, you, you may have to pay the income tax on the capital gain, and that's where... A lot of investors are obviously holding on until the time comes to sell that property. So it's really a, a small figure indeed. <laughs> and the they're also predicting a slight or potential sales hump in a couple of years' time where purchasers who purchased prior to the last increase past the five-year mark and decided to sell and pocket the gains tax-free. So it's hard to know what effect the 10-year bright line might be. If you're a true developer, you probably just factor in the extra cost and go ahead per usual because, remember, you're only paying tax on profit. But for someone who was originally pondering a buy-and-hold purchase, say, five years ago, they, they may just not now purchase in the first place, uh, so that effect probably won't be too noticeable. It's interesting to see uh, what happens and whether the government would expect a glut of homes to hit the market in 2023 but really most investors buy and hold uh, for a very long time. So it's really trying to address this issue of flipping, which is a hot topic when the market is busy, but it's probably not much of an actual issue. So here's uh, a little bit of bad landlord, bad tenants this week. Uh, The first story, the landlord of a filthy, unlawful home is ordered to pay $3,700. So the landlord of this home, described as filthy and unlawful by a tenancy tribunal, has been ordered to pay a former tenant $3,756 in damages and compensation. The tenant, who has been granted name suppression, was a customer of G.J. Gardner and was offered the home as a temporary residence while her house was being built. The home had large holes in the walls and floors 
leaks from the roof and windows that could not be closed or opened. The property was owned by a company associated with Housing West Coast, the local franchise holder of GJ Gardner, which the tribunal said was the landlord in this case. Joanne Sinnott, the housing administrator at GJ Gardner, represented the landlord in the tribunal hearing during the tenancy. The tenancy started in February last year after the tenant viewed a GJ Gardner show home with the intention to have a similar home built for herself. On a plot of land next to the show home was another building owned by Housing West Coast. Sinnott told the tenant that the house was to be demolished and another GJ Gardner show home built in its place, but until that time the tenant would be able to rent the house for $250 a week and Sinnott said it was a as-is, where-is house. This is something that I see in the private sector uh, where landlords think that by lowering the rent um, that, will, that will allow them to uh, breach the laws. So when the property viewed the property, it did not seem to her to be in a livable state, but she was assured by Senate that some cleaning would be done before she moved in. But when she moved into the house, it was in poor condition. The various holes in the floor and the walls had not been repaired. Some windows were taped shut and others couldn't be used. And the stove and kitchen was so filthy as to render the area unusable. So shortly after moving in, the tenant discovered a significant leak from a light fixture, fixture above the toilet. That's some scary stuff. And the tenant made repeated complaints about this and other issues to little effect. The leak was fixed more than a month later after the tenant reported the situation to the local council, which instructed the landlord to act. Shortly after this, the tenant was served with a 90-day termination notice, an act Armstrong said was plainly retaliatory. Senate defended the conditions of the tenancy during the hearing. I said it was set for demolition that we would not be fixing anything unless it became unsafe. So you can't contract out of the Residential Tenancies Act. In fact, Armstrong said that the statement revealed the landlord's attitude to the tenancy and the indication the landlord had no intention to honour its obligations under the Residential Tenancies Act. They simply should not have rented it out. The landlord did not seriously try to argue against the proposition that the premises fell well below the standard required by the Act. It would have been futile to do so as photos spoke for themselves. So considerable damages there. Nowhere near as considerable as this article though, so landlords be careful. Landlord offered to pay $38,000 after child develops rheumatic heart disease. This is horrible. So a Christchurch landlord has been ordered to pay almost $39,000 after their serious exploitation of vulnerable tenants led to a child developing rheumatic heart disease. In a decision released on Friday, the Tenancy Tribunal found landlords Anne and Roger Stocker had breached the Residential Tenancies Act in several ways, including failing to maintain the property in respect of health and safety matters. Really important that landlords are up to speed with health and safety. The Tribunal said the Stockers, now living in Australia, also failed to complete general maintenance and appoint an agent while not residing in New Zealand. They had not lodged bonds and did not comply with smoke alarm and insulation statement requirements. The breach is related to Christchurch rental property housing a vulnerable Pacifica family over several years. The substandard conditions of the property were believed to have significantly contributed to a child developing rheumatic heart disease, which will have continuous impact on their life, the tribunal found. The conditions affected the family in many ways, including the rooms being unusable due to their condition and tenants' possessions having to be destroyed due to mould and dampness. The Tenancy Tribunal hearing followed action taken by the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment's Tenancy Compliance and Investigations team. The team's national manager, Steve Watson, said the evidence of harm from the poor condition of the property showed the stockers demonstrated deliberate, willful non-compliance as landlords. There is no justification for the poor behaviour of landlords which amounted to serious exploitation. 
The landlords were aware of the condition of the property, yet failed to take any steps to prevent harm to the occupants and showed no concern for the serious health implications on the young child living in the house. Watson said the most concerning aspect of the case was the length of time the tenants had to live in a substandard property which severely impacted their health and that of their young child. The tribunal found the landlords were aware of their breaches of the Residential Tenancies Act and continued to manage the tenancy in an unacceptable manner without engaging or showing any willingness to remedy any of the harm and health problems they caused the tenants. So their actions seemed to be motivated by the fact that tenants had nowhere else to go and were vulnerable to exploitation. The tenants here is referred to the tenancy complaint uh, organisation by the Christchurch City Council, which had conducted its own investigation after a Canterbury DHB referral showing the child's admission to hospital. According to the tribunal, a senior environmental health officer from the council concluded the property was so affected by mould and damp it was uninhabitable. And on a scale of 1 to 10, where 10 was the worst measure for inhabitability, the property was at level 9, the officer found. So you can't just ignore things and let things go by. If there is an instance where harm can be caused, uh, that really is something that needs to be addressed promptly uh, and quickly. The changes to Health and Safety at Work Act uh, of some years ago meant now that landlords, even if they hire property managers, are responsible in part for uh, health and safety at the property and if you know about something, you must put it right. Um, so this, this was o- over $38,000 to be paid to that, uh, that family for um, putting them into those circumstances and not rectifying things. Another article here, I'll just touch on this, this is sort of watch this space, but rental property management staff and contractors must be fully vaccinated to work. Crockers says. Now Auckland Property Management Company Crockers, which is a very large company, uh, says all its property managers will have to be fully vaccinated. The company which manages residential investment properties for landlords would also be requiring contractors like plumbers, cleaners and glaziers that it sent into the homes it manages to be fully vaccinated as well. Chief Executive Helen O'Sullivan said its vaccine mandate was being introduced after a risk assessment. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern says businesses that require vaccine certificates for entry will now be required to have a fully vaccinated workforce. So the tenants of the homes at which open homes are being held or tenanted viewings had legal rights which included asking only fully vaccinated people to come through the homes while they are living in them. So when we're showing homes that occupied, tenants are entitled to put reasonable conditions on access, O'Sullivan said. In my view, asking that all people who come to their home are immunised would be a reasonable condition for tenants to request of contractors or property managers and of potential renters of that home. This could limit the opportunities for unvaccinated people to view homes for rent. And that's the watch the space part. So we'll just have to see what happens there with the industry. It's um, possible that that may be the case where things are going. So watch the space. I'll keep you informed on that one. But for... the time being that's all we've got for this week thank you so much for listening to property matters i'm greg watson you can always search me greg watson in palmist north or property matters and you will find your way to me if you need any help or advice off here thanks so much and have a great week if you're a fan of npr listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the Kiwifruit logo. 
Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favourite show.